0: Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 2.
1: Grace maintained her crash bag with care. After nearly a century's existence under a curse that let her wake only while a thankfully large candle burned, she'd learned not to waste time. And since teen three traveled constantly, that meant refining her packing methods. As soon as she made it home from a mission, Grace zipped open her bag, threw out the clothes stained with sweat, blood, or ichor, which amounted to most of them, tossed the few she wanted to keep into a hamper for Vatican mooks to dry clean, replaced travel toiletries with new equivalents from the boxes under the sink, packed fresh underclothes, and left the top layers for the day of the mission. No way to prepare for that, since she had no sense when she'd be needed next. Massachusetts in late autumn meant golds and reds. She chose loose cream pants and a burgundy silk top and a camel hair coat to meld them, a dress and tights for non-combat formal wear, and the right shoes, and headed for the armory. She didn't spare a glance for the wrecked firearms. She had never liked guns, liked them even less since she first stumbled into work with the Bureau of Official Secrets back in Shanghai in the 20s, and found that most demons, ghosts, goblins, and assorted crawlies didn't tend to notice bullets. Guns were useful for making men and foreigners listen to you, and that was about it. Since the curse, they'd proved even more hindrance than help. She was weapon enough without the aid of something people could see. She checked out four crosses and two silver rings from the spindle-boned monk behind the armory desk. He adjusted his glasses, bobbed his head, or nodded. She'd never been able to tell the difference with him, and retreated into the back. Grace took her copy of the collected work of Keats from her handbag and read while he was gone. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness... Stateside, said Tavani Shah behind her. Sounds like fun. Grace took her time finishing the poem. Then, Sansoni gave you the brief already? They usually wait until we screw up. New procedures, courtesy of Monsignor Fox. Improved transparency. This way, we're less likely to get caught with our trousers down if you fail. Grace turned. Not that I expect trouble. Shah was leaning against the rifle rack. Team One's operational lead looked more than a bit like a rifle herself dog owners grew to look like their dogs, and vice versa. If Judas go forth tonight, it is to Judas his steps will tend. Of course, Tavani Shaw looked like a weapon. But we might as well be ready. Do you find the waiting worse, Grace asked, or the action? Neither. Grace waited. It's the space between that bothers me. When I know we might be called up, I'm alive. When we're in the field, I go in assuming I'm dead, and when we win, I'm born again. Between, though, I don't really exist in that time. I'm stuck in a half-life, wondering what's out there that's your orb and team two spies haven't yet picked up yet. She trailed one hand over the shoulder stock of a rifle. You ever wonder if we've lost already? Maybe demons already control the world, and they're good enough at it that no one's ever noticed. How are you, knights? The ones you put in the hospital? improving. am Ms. Sue will be back in the squad soon, though. I expect she'll have to pass on her gear to one of the trainees. You did a very thorough job on her knee. I'm sorry. You did what you had to do. Even hiding from us, how strong you could be, how fast you could move. It, it makes sense, Grace. I'm just grateful I had the chance to see her really fight. The armorer returned with a manila envelope that held Grace's load out. She signed for the crosses and rings. He countersigned, and she added the envelope to her purse. The lack of clarity bothers you, Shaw said. I know it does. You're at your best when you're fighting. Anything less an open battle, and you feel lost. I understand. You think you do, Grace said, and walked past her toward the door. Join us. You'd be perfect on team one. You've glided through the waiting without the slightest notice and wake to perfect clarity. No shadows, no wasted time, no muddling. I like muddling. Grace said, can't make a proper cocktail without it. She heard fabric shift behind her. Sharpness whispered through the air. Grace burned. In a room not so far away, her candle flared. A few minutes of her life melted away, and the world slowed. She reached without looking, and caught the knife Shaw had thrown by its handle. Clouds obscured the blade, not striations like on watered steel, but clouds like an afternoon before a storm, limned with sun. A gift, Team One picked it up in Russia in the late 19th century. Cleared quarantine last week. We think the clouds will part as it's used. What happens then, who knows? I thought you should have it. What do you want? Shaw laughed. It's a token of good faith, Grace. We're on the same side. She tossed the sheath underhand and Grace caught that too. Then she left. Back in a sec read the sticky note on the empty bowl of candy on Mrs. Milligan's desk. The librarian herself was gone. Joseph didn't have a sec. The door opened behind him, slow and heavy. He pictured himself pinned to the stone floor here, while the rubber bats circled above. Okay, 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 get it together. The fire exit glowed red in the rear corner of the room. They'd see him if he went for that, would catch him out behind the building. But the library was on a hill, and there was a loading dock one floor down. Mrs. Milligan rarely locked that. He could lose them in the basement, slip out the loading door. Yes. Stevie Jenks half fell into the library, searched, pointed one skeleton finger toward Joseph. Hey, invasion of the body snatchers, Joseph's brain prompted, unhelpful as ever. Joseph sprinted toward the fire door. Ron and Chris ran to block his path, and Joseph cornered hard, skidded on stone, grabbed the railing, and vaulted downstairs through fake cobweb. They'd banked the downstairs lights, low. No ghosts and goblins lurked down here, just shadows broken by the fire exit light. Joseph ran from that light, turned right, and right again, wove through tall shelves toward the loading dock. Footsteps followed, panting, hunting breath. And there were monsters in the basement two skeletons and Frankenstein's monster and a ghost. And Joseph. He kept his head down, hiked up his starry robes, and tiptoed through the science section toward the loading dock door. He approached, bent low. He had to time it just right, make as little noise as possible when he opened the door. It won't work, kid. Joseph froze. His lungs seized up. He squeaked. A hand made of ice clutched him by the throat. The voice had whispered into his right ear, but it wasn't Stevie Jenks' voice, or Ron's, or Chris's, or Ted's. And he was kneeling against a bookshelf. Who could have spoken? Just me. so it's another creepy town, is it? Liam asked as Sal drove them towards St. Xavier. It doesn't look creepy to me. Grace frowned out the window. Creepy town, trees drooped after a cold November rain. An abandoned tricycle sat on the lawn of an Adams family house set back from the road. Multicolored sodden streamers dangled from the tricycle's handles. A single traffic light blinked on and off. They drove past. The place could have been a ghost town. When they first turned off the highway, Sal had worried it was. But after three blocks' drive into the dilapidated red brick town of blank glass windows, Sal saw an old man shuffling along a broken sidewalk, led by a golden retriever, at least as old in dog years. The old man might be an illusion, but she doubted malevolent magic would come up with a golden retriever. Uncanny, sure. Disturbing as hell, but also mundane, so far. Sal wasn't sure whether that made it worse. This is just how towns look in Massachusetts. Creepy, Menchu said. Not all American towns are creepy, guys. Sal's eyes burned, and her body felt like it was about to kill her. One transatlantic trip had been bad enough. Two in a row constituted enemy action, literally, in this case. Hashtag, Liam said. Sal punched him in the shoulder and pulled to the curb. Hey, I didn't mean. They'd stopped in front of a vine and brick box that a dingy sign named as Mike's General Store. Someone around here might know more about our missing school. No sense going in blind. Come along if you want. Might do you good to meet the locals. Once you do, they won't look so creepy. Liam followed her onto the sidewalk. Wanna bet? Grace rolled down the window and called after them. We know where the problem is. We should just go straight there. Intelligence, though. Grace returned her attention to her book. Get me a soda water. The general store was lit so brightly that it hurt Sal's eyes after the gray outside. She blinked away sparks, scammed empty aisles. A large man stood behind the register. She walked toward him, raised her hand, the screen door slammed shut behind her. She jumped and turned. Liam stood inside, looking sheepish. Sorry, I thought it would catch itself. Jesus, I'll trouble you not to take the Lord's name in vain. You spooked me. Perhaps because this place is creepy? Don't say that. Why, there's no one to hear me except you. She pointed to the counter, where no one stood. There was a cashier just a second ago. Damn, damn, damn. She saw motion out of the corner of her eye, a stockroom door closing. She ran toward it. Sir. She skidded on the tiles, stumbling into a stack of paper towel boxes that spilled all over the stockroom floor. God, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to rush in, but. The room was empty. The exit door was locked. Lights flickered and buzzed. He was right behind the counter, she said. I saw the door moving. He must have come in here. She picked herself up off the floor and shoved the boxes into something vaguely resembling order. You saw him, right? Liam shook his head. Maybe I was wrong. She pulled her cross out from under her shirt. Silver looked duller than she remembered, or was that the light? The magic shouldn't have seeped out this far from the school, this fast. Not according to Sansone, but that was a guess. I hadn't seen anyone in the street, anyone except the old guy. She shouldered past Liam and sprinted out into the street, just in time to see the old man with the golden retriever round a corner. She ran down the road, turned the corner, shouted, sir, excuse me. Their road unrolled between blank-faced houses on both sides until it disappeared in thick mist. Liam huffed up to the corner beside her. Gone? Sal didn't have to nod. He grunted. He might have gone indoors or turned down another street. Did you hear any footsteps? She didn't answer. The town was very silent. Liam breathed, and she heard it. Sal said, I don't think that mist was there before either. Liam glanced down the road to the highway and cursed. Mist there, too? Oh, yeah. I mean, it looks, we could still gun for the highway and trust the silver to keep us safe. But that's not the job. No. Lamb shook his head. That it isn't. They returned to the car. Sal revved the engine hard, shifted into drive, and peeled away from the curb. No soda water? Grace asked. They left the town behind, drove through an overgrown field lined with damp telephone poles toward woods the color of red rot. The mist followed. It flowed from the town and crept through the tall grass. In there, Asante pointed. Second left, there'll be a gate if we can make it. The car died as they passed into the shadow of the trees. The sky looked flat and close, as if it were a solid gray shell just above the branches. Maybe it was. Maybe the mist closed in from above and below, as well as behind. Manchu gathered them by the road for equipment review. Crosses? Check. Grace, Sal noted, was carrying a sheathed knife. That was new. Faster spread than expected, Asante said. Interesting. It can be interesting later, Liam said. Once we find whatever started this and stop it, for now, let's settle for terrifying. Fingers of mist crept through the forest toward them. Sal didn't know whether those were lowercase or uppercase mists and didn't want to wait around to find out. The fog bank had eaten half the field and started gnawing on the second half. Any idea what we're looking for? Asante examined the contents of her satchel. Seems more likely a book than a beast, but until we find more evidence, I don't care to guess. Definitely within the school, though. She showed them a flat silver coin, tarnished almost black. It's been darkening faster the closer we get to St. Xavier. All right. Menchu sounded tired. They all were. Let's go. Asante marched to the head of the line beside Liam. Grace lingered in the center of the group near Menchu, not speaking. Not touching, either. Sal felt a sudden sharp pang for Grace and what she'd found and lost. Five ghosts trudging down a damp asphalt strip toward what, exactly? Manchu had spent his entire adult life leading people and losing them. Grace, torn outside of time. Liam, Sal didn't know much about his life before possession, but whatever it had been, he'd probably liked it just fine before the magic stole those years from him. Sal herself had lost her brother, gained him back, lost him again. And Asante. Asante was fine. Asante was careful. But Asanti hadn't suffered in quite the same way as the others. Or if she had, she never shared it with Sal. Sal fell back, hypnotized by the mush of footsteps through wet leaves. When Liam raised his hand and called out, we're here, from the front of the line, she jogged toward him. That was when she noticed the footsteps behind her coming from the mist. They matched her tread while she'd fallen behind, their steps nestled inside hers. But when she quickened her pace, theirs lagged a beat behind. Sal ran faster. Liam had never let things go, never once from childhood, as his mother and siblings wasted no opportunity to remind him. Grudges carried from infancy, that was him. Glared till age 20 at the hand that slipped when rocking the cradle. Oh, Sure, many would besmirch his pugnacity, call it a fault or handicap, but Liam saw it another way. How was the world served by people who knuckled under when faced with pressure? The world wasn't a giving quarter sort of place, in his view or experience, which had been his impression long before magic reared its horned head, thank you very much. He'd known it early as a dog getting laid off at the factory. And nothing he'd ever experienced kneeling in penance on a hard stone church floor gainsaid that conclusion. Besides which, science really only worked if people were assholes to one another. You had a belief, you fought for it, forced others to prove their position or disprove yours. He was, if he thought about it, doing his opponents a favor by giving them a whetstone against which to sharpen their arguments. He was sure Asante would see it his way, given time. I'm just saying, he continued, we have to consider the problem empirically. Every time, bar none, anyone opens up any of these books for any reason, they all but wipe out their neighborhood. You're missing the point, Asante replied with a degree of comfort that continued to surprise Liam as if she were so certain of her rightness that the chance she might be wrong held no hint of threat because inconceivable. If only she'd listen. Liam was aware of what his old teachers at uni would have described as a certain incoherence in this position. It didn't bother him much. People, especially modern people, don't tend to believe magic exists. Really believe, I mean. Strange words from someone with your job. I was staunchly atheist before I began working with the Vatican, I'll have you know. And now? is subject for another time, she said. But yes, people aren't materialist by wiring, certainly. Setting aside ontological questions for a second, our brains contain deep circuitry that leads us to ascribe agency to random chance. That said, we live in a materialist world. That is, only materialist solutions to problems are recognized as such. Consider the desperation most modern, non-church-going, industrialized human beings require before they turn to prayer, say, to solve their problems. Many faithful people pray and work on their own behalf, but in my limited experience, people without a background in prayer turn to it only an extremity, controlling for ideological factors, of course. If you're looking to be saved through faith alone, Asante, you're in the wrong church. My point, think of magic as a set of tools. Most people don't realize those tools exist at all, and as a result only reach for them in fear or fury. No wonder they often cause harm. If a woman trying to defend herself bashes her assailant over the head with a bust of Diderot, do we lock up all of Houdon's work, or do we recognize desperation prompted the bust's use for an unintended purpose? That's a very specific example, Liam said. Don't pry into your personal life, the archivist replied. I'll thank you to extend me the same courtesy. But in my years of working with this team, and as far as I can tell in the centuries before that, we've seen a whole lot of people getting bashed over the head with statuary, and some statues that seem awfully determined to bash people over the head unprompted. In fact, we've seen a good deal more of both cases than we have of statues being used for anything else. One starts to think that either there's a problem with the statues or with the people. Original sin, Asante said as if pointing out a bluebird. Liam frowned. That's what I'm saying. We're too flawed to be trusted with magic. Is magical power so different from technological progress? We have nuclear weapons. We don't trust people with nukes either, until these technology don't have demons. Demons, though, are a completely different thing. They reached a wrought iron gate between two stone pillars. Gothic letters on one pillar proclaimed St. Francis Xavier School, established, but ivy wound over the date. Black plastic spiders hung from the iron lattice, draped in sodden fake webs two rotting pumpkins rested by the roadside, grinning melted grins. Far down the winding drive rose the yellow-gray heap of Benefice Hall. Anyway, to be continued, can we both agree, at least, that anyone who lived in a place like this would be sore tempted to put out his own eyes with whatever he had to hand, even were magic completely out of the picture? Asante shrugged good-naturedly. For the moment... Liam raised his hand to signal to the rest of the group, turned around, and saw Sal barreling toward them down the road. Then he saw what was behind her. Then he cursed and screamed and ran. Come on, kid, you don't have much time. If Joseph didn't look, it couldn't. No, that never worked in films. It never worked with Stevie Jenks. The label on the shelf to his right read Planets, The shelf was half full of old books about Mars and a bunch of manuals from the 70s for building Orion rockets and starting colonies on other planets. And just behind his right ear rested a book that didn't belong. It was shelved face out on a metal stand. Pale leather binding, front cover embossed with a big bearded face, like the ones on Greek statues, only without eyes. Thick paper, deckled edges that rippled as he watched like tall grass when the wind blew. It could not be glowing in the dark. It was just so ghostly green that it seemed phosphorescent, which wasn't much better. I can help, the book said. The bearded, eyeless face did not change, but seemed just this side of earnest. That's why you came here, isn't it? You want help? Open me. Joseph dove for the loading dock door and hit the lever with his shoulder. The door rattled against the jam. The lock didn't budge. He's over there, Stevie Jenks' voice. Two skeletons, Frankenstein's monster and a ghost, turned toward Joseph at once and charged to the science section toward him. Shame about the door, kid. The way I see it, you got two choices. Fight them, or let me help you out. The ghost rounded the last corner and ran toward him. Joseph grabbed the book. Its leather stung his hands. He opened it. I wanna go home, kid, the book said. We can do a lot better than that. He felt the bearded face smile beneath his hand. Let's make them run.
0: We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the world wide web, VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any british tv show but they aren't always available in the us so with nordvpn i can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly nordvpn is also the fastest vpn in the world and you can get all that speed protection and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month to get the best discount off your nordvpn plan go to nordvpn.com bookburners our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. shopify.com slash realm
1: four everyone no matter how much they love their job hates some part of it and running was the element of her duties as archivist which Asante particularly loathed all she'd ever wanted was to study magic Unfortunately, that study required the occasional bout of fieldwork, and her recent experience of fieldwork turned out to require a frustrating level of cardiovascular fitness. She was, of course, terrified. That's why she was joking to herself about cardiovascular fitness, etc. Nervous tick, curse of an overdeveloped sense of irony. Few and far between were the librarians killed in the line of duty. Fewer still were those who died outside. One didn't tend to be drawn to this business by a love of the great outdoors. She wondered if anyone had ever assembled that list, and if not, how one would go about doing so. Intellectual historians would be a good start. Uh, Certainly the Vatican kept casualty records, which perhaps they would let her use if she survived, which depended on running. So she ran. Mist seeped from the ground and rolled in from the woods. She couldn't see the grass anymore. The campus grounds became a bowl of mist rising to the treetops. Mist rolled from the gaping windows of Benefice Hall, cascaded down its face. Shapes swelled and broke the mist. Enormous green bodies, grasping gnarled claws, fanged skulls cresting the gray only to dip below again like whales shadowing the surface. Or maybe she was wrong about the shapes. She tried to make herself stop to identify them. If they made it out of here alive, such monsters would prove fantastic additions to her field guide. But when she tried to turn, the ground lurched beneath her. She stumbled, recovered without turning her ankles, small mercy. Couldn't get a clean look at them while running, of course. She tried to stop, just for a second. They had enough of a lead, surely. Terror caught her in the stomach, squeezed, turned a tuning key in her spine. Her nerves locked, restarted, and she found herself sprinting again. Liam ran just ahead of her, pale with utter terror. He wasn't looking, wasn't trying to help. Manchu cried out behind them. Asante risked a glance back to look, saw him fall. In a blur, Grace reached his side, slung the man across her shoulders in a fireman's carry, and ran, easily passing Asante and Liam both. Sal caught up, muscles burning, and kept running. Didn't look. None of them were looking. Asante hadn't even looked back for Sal. Grace had returned for Arturo, but she wasn't trying to fight. Liam was pulling ahead. That was wrong. All of this was Wrong. Wrong that Grace should run, wrong that Sal shouldn't try to help. Liam, she shouted, what are you running from? Are you mental? I'm running from what's behind us. What is that? Don't you fucking see? No. She was panting now, her legs about to give. Come on. He slowed, caught her wrist, pulled her forward. Gotta run. We gotta stay ahead of these things. I can't let them catch me. She stumbled, balanced herself, breath wheezed in her lungs. Behind them, something enormous howled. Hot breath scorched her neck. Too close for the mist. Liam wasn't leaving her, not yet. She could see he wanted to. That cut and polished body, tense, furious, desperate. You don't want to run, she said. The hell you say? You don't. This isn't what we do, Liam. This isn't the job. Something's. couldn't breathe, couldn't. Something's keeping us running. This is magic. We're trapped in it right now. Those things are after us. We can't even see them. We don't know what they are. I saw. I know. Liam, trust me. If he didn't, that might be the last thing he would ever do. Of course, if she was wrong and he did, the same applied. Stop. It's a library, Liam said in the silence that followed. Asante nodded. Oh, it could do some work. They stood on a stone floor beneath high-arched ceilings. Shelves lay on their sides, books spilled everywhere, splayed open. Pages fluttered in unfelt wind. People filled the space around them, children in costume, teachers, a mailman. Father Culler, whom Asante recognized from his file. Fear twisted their faces. A gray call lay over and around them, leeching color from the air, muffling their screams. They ran ceaselessly around the broken library's edge, trapped in shadow like ants and honey. Asante saw Sal, saw Grace carrying Arturo. She didn't call to them. She had no illusions about that strategy's likely efficacy. Were we here all along? Drawn here, Asante said. Probably by him. She nodded at the boy floating in midair. He'd made the costume himself, she would have bet. The stitching on his night-blue wizard's robe looked self-taught, and the glitter and hot glue stars had the wiggle of an uncertain crafter's hand. When she taught her own grandchildren how to use the glue gun, the lines they'd first made had shaken like that. She imagined this boy studying books and websites to learn how to make this foolish thing, and her heart hurt for him. The cotton ball beard hung in patches from his cheeks. It no longer hid the chin strap of his construction paper hat. Magic had robbed everyone else of color and bestowed all that on the boy. Ill-framed as his costume might be, it pulsed with life, its cheap felt deep as a sky. Glitter stars, brilliant as any real ones Asante had ever seen. Tears and snot streaked his face, smearing the charcoal lines of makeup he'd drawn on to make himself look older. He held a book before him, bound in white leather, stained red where his hands touched. Blood dripped from cuts in his fingers and palm. His eyes were pink and swollen from crying, but he read through the tears. His lips moved. The words he spoke blurred and slipped from Asante's hearing. Trying to understand them felt like trying to grasp small, smooth river rocks in a flood. If she didn't know Catalan or Finnish or Javanese, she would have thought he was speaking Catalan or Finnish or Javanese. She did, so she didn't. She picked her way toward him, across the toppled shelves. As she approached, she felt her colors swell with his, the yellows of her blouse and the gold stripe in her trousers, the fullness of her skin. His words softened as she approached and grew more distinct. There was a grammar to them. If she lingered here for long enough, she could catch it, learn it, use it. But that was not why she had come. You're scared, she said. Liam, from beyond the wrecked shelves, shouted, Close the book! No, we might kill him. The boy is halfway between our world and theirs now. If we close it, he'll be trapped on the other side. Worth it, goddammit. He climbed toward her, toward the kid. All these people stuck here, it's growing. Close the book, Asante, close it. Hush, Liam, she said. This is a library. She reached into the heart of the color. Whatever this book had done, whatever fear the poor boy brought with him, he'd found safety here. He'd found a power and let it shine. She cupped his cheek and guided his eyes from the page. It's okay, she said. You're safe. You can stop. He looked at her, and she hoped he saw reflected in her eyes what she saw in his. He closed the book. There was a loud silence, and the world blinked. Cleanup took less time than Sal expected. When she had come to, between one terrified footfall and the next, she found herself in what looked like a library that magic had tossed all the shit. A location-event combo with which she'd had entirely too much experience in the last year, alone with a few hundred of her closest fellow victims, wondering what exactly she'd been scared of. A mist? Shapes in the trees? Footsteps? Asante knelt beside a kid in a wizard's robe, hugging him. He sobbed into her shoulder. He still held the book. Menchu swept him with the shroud. The kid tensed. Asante took the shroud from Menchu and wrapped the kid's book tight. A middle-aged woman wearing a Mrs. Frizzle costume, the librarian, maybe? Given that her first expression on recovery was a cry of dismay, ran to the boy's side. Asante released him with only a second's reluctance. Liam watched. Sal didn't know what to make of the look on his face. She checked herself bars, nice. Not perfect as a magic detector, but it worked okay. A call to Sony and Team Two's local forces rolled in. Menchu met them at the gate with the school headmaster, who proved shaken, unsteady, and utterly willing to be guided by a man in a priest collar. The Team Two reps turned out to be therapists, mostly. Sal so wasn't sure what she had been expecting, a SWAT team? Balloon and Stretch 2.0? Sony's promise of a kinder, gentler Team Two seemed to be bearing fruit, which just made Sal more suspicious, but never mind the bollocks. Here's the sex pistols. Anyway, it had been a very long day. Sal found Grace leaning against one wall, thumb in a school library copy of the Westing game, that looked to have come through the affair with only minor cover damage. You okay? Grace shrugged. I mean, the magic made you run away, and you never run away. I can see that hitting you hard. That's magic she said. Makes you do stuff sometimes. It's helpful, in a way. What do you mean? Now I know what I'll do if I ever get too scared to fight. What's that? Get Arturo out first, then come back for the rest of you? She didn't grin, but there was humor somewhere in her voice, or maybe Sal was imagining it. Sal joined Liam on cleanup, writing fallen shelves under the librarian's direction, restoring some semblance of order, least they could do. Asante spent most of her time with the librarian and the kid. As caught Liam glancing over his shoulder at them once or twice. What? I told her to close the book, he said, and trap him on the other side. It didn't even occur to me that he might be able to close it himself. You couldn't have known. I didn't know because I didn't think. He heaved a bookcase upright with too much force. Mysteries spilled out. I'm only alive because Father Manchu did think when he found me. If he hadn't, I'd be. He shook his head. Out there, somewhere. Everyone makes mistakes. You're allowed a few. Yeah, he said. But I tend to make big ones. Five. The Black Archives looked like the Black Archives did these days, scholars and shelves and machines and all. And if you wanted a more detailed description, you should have asked Sal someday when she wasn't suffering from three consecutive back-to-back pond-hopping jet lags. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was ready to split the difference between Europe and America, settle down in St. Martin's, somewhere they serve pink frozen cocktails with umbrellas in them, and call it a day. Asante paced around the orb with an expression sal associated with first-time dog owners who found that puppy has left a biologically improbable mess on the floor. You're saying the orb didn't react at all? Francis held a binder the size of a Manhattan phone book propped open on her arm. No, Dr. Asante. We had a slight non-localized brightness around 12.33 p.m. on Wednesday, associated with a gentle smell of roses, but aside from that, the bloody things bust. Liam collapsed in his chair, kicked up his feet, and meshed his fingers behind his head. Great, we're doomed. No sense being fatalist. Grace stared into her own reflection in the orb crystal. Its light painted her peach. We didn't need the orb this time. If we work more closely with Sansoni's team, we should be able to muddle through. With all respect- Francis said. We've just started studying the orb. We may find a way to reduce the gain or extract meaningful information from the luminous data wash. I'm running experiments with computer models, which will take too much time. Grace cut in. Francis colored slightly. I mean, Grace continued, I'm sure it's a good idea, but it's science, right? Could be done tomorrow, could take forever. We need a solution now. Sal drained espresso number six and free threw the empty cup into Liam's trash can. I hate to be the spoil sport, but I'm not, you know, ecstatic about the idea of relying on Team 2, even if Sansoni is playing nice. For one thing, that puts us in a weird political situation. For another, Team 2 still creeps me the fuck out. I have a better idea, Asante said. Liam tensed. We need to fix the orb. Liam relaxed again. Oh, yeah, sure. We definitely need to fix the orb. Just have to settle the one tiny problem of not knowing how to do that. It's maker's might. Father Manchu had spent the conversation so far, reviewing paperwork at Asante's desk. He set the papers down and pushed his glasses up on his nose. No. It's not like we have a better option, Arturo. You're talking about violating at least a dozen rules and a paper bull. Literally any option would be better. Team four made the orb. Team four was expelled. No one knows what happened to them, and the Vatican has forbidden magic's use and study ever since. We were only allowed to keep using the orb after they left, because there was no better option. And there still isn't, Asante said. I'm not proposing heresy, Arturo. Just a fact-finding mission. Plans are in their vaults.
0: Let's go in and get them. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm your portal to another world. Listen away. Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose-Smith with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring Jody Redditch-Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.